What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong, and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quarterly Compliance in London, for another episode. And today we are going to take up coronavirus, COVID-19 for those insiders in the know, and data protection. So, Jonathan, first of all, are you safe and isolated in the United Kingdom? <laughs> Thanks very much. Tom, yeah, I think, uh, I hope we're safe. We've, much as the rest of the world, had unseemly panic buying. But I guess that as a you know relatively new law firm, we've been going for six years, we were built with remote working in mind. So we've been working from home, as you'd expect, quite a bit now. And um, I guess this is the new normal for us all, isn't it? It is for the foreseeable future. So, Jonathan, I think uh, this has been a question or re- really several questions on a lot of compliance practitioners' minds in the United States is what are the GDPR issues around data protection in the midst of this coronavirus crisis? So what do, what do you and uh, your quarterly colleagues see as some of the key issues? Well, I think that it certainly is something that requires careful thought, and you shouldn't rush into doing something different. But I think if you can do that, then obviously we can manage through the risks relatively easily. I think the first thing to say is the usual advice that we always give in this situation. Anybody who comes up with an offer that sounds too good to be true Well, here's the news. It might be too good to be true. And I think we're seeing that with a number of approaches to corporations saying, we've got an app, we've got a solution, and this will help you manage your employee health. It will help manage associations between them, et cetera, et cetera. And it's the usual advice, you know, don't throw caution to the wind when uh, opening the doors to them you still will have to do proper due diligence. So if somebody's offering to do health screening for you or testing employees or analyzing travel records or installing apps uh, for people to input their data or crisis management apps to locate people around the world, then you still have to do due diligence. And that will usually be things like a credit check into their financial status, a check to see how long they've been going, a check to see that they have appropriate data protection registrations in place where that's a legal requirement. And it'll be looking at things like the agreement that they're proposing. Are they prepared to do a written agreement? Does that give them enough skin in the game to make sure that they don't lose the data and are not careless with it? And As a reminder, in GDPR, we have stuff called special category data. It used to be called sensitive personal data. That is data that we have to treat with 
utmost respect. And health data is in that category. And uh, it's easy to see how you could get other um, special category data uh, through the collection of information about individuals as well. For example, I know in the US, one of the outbreaks was amongst a religious community. So if you're tracking people's location into places of worship for association purposes, that's also special category data as well. This requires special care. And in most cases, you'll have to do a data protection impact assessment. You can handle health data and special category data in some circumstances, uh, particularly where it is necessary to protect the vital interests of the data subject. But I'm emphasizing the word necessary. Necessity means what it says. So some apps or third-party providers are offering alternate ways of processing which are convenient, but they might not be necessary. And these decisions are always really tough when you're using vital interests. To give you one example, we used vital interests once uh, when I was acting for an educational institution, and we had one of the students who lived away from home in intensive care due to a drugs overdose. And you can use vital interests, but you've got to go through some checks and balances uh, before you do that. And as I say, in most cases, that will involve a data protection impact assessment, which we talked about previously, Tom. So, Jonathan, I think one of the things that U.S. compliance practitioners will try to utilize, because it is relatively common in the United States, is consent. Uh, I think perhaps you or, or maybe even your European colleagues might have a little bit different view. Could you kind of talk us through the issue around consent? Yeah, it almost never works in these situations. But firstly, because it's difficult to get uh, consent from employees because of the inequality of bargaining power. And secondly, because consent can always be withdrawn. So a healthy employee might give you consent, but once she becomes unwell, she might withdraw the consent. So you're in a much worse position there. So usually consent isn't the best solution. Usually you're going to look at vital interest of the data subject or some other reason like that to justify what you're trying to do. Jonathan, what are the regulators telling us? Well, some regulators are more... Um, sympathetic than others. Uh, this morning, we reviewed around about 16 regulators that had issued guidance. Would think. And my sense is some regulators are modifying what they say as the situation gets worse. Now, it's important to remember that GDPR sets out a basic framework, but local law can differ within the EU. And the reasons that you, or, or the, if you like, the justifications for handling special category data do vary across the EU. They're, I'm oversimplifying, but they're subject to local law um, rather than being harmonized throughout the whole of the EU. And some regulators have already expressed concern. For example, on March 2nd, the Italian Data Protection Authority, the Garante, 
published guidance unusually in English and Italian. And I think they published that in English because there is a perception by some debt protection authority in Europe that U.S. corporations are the worst offenders at not thinking these things through properly. And their guidance said that the primary responsibility for collecting health data, for working out associations, et cetera, is with the public health authorities. And it's not with employers. Employers have to do what they can to help when they're asked. But they shouldn't be front, front and centre on this, at least according to Garanta. And they said, using their translation, employers must refrain from collecting in advance and in a systematic and generalised manner including through specific requests to the individual worker or unauthorised investigations, information on the presence of any signs of influenza in the worker and his or her closest contacts or anyhow regarding areas outside the work environment. So Garante are fairly black and white. You can ask them about stuff within the work environment, but not whilst they're working from home and not in their social lives. And since then, regulators... In other countries, have issued statements as well. In Austria, for example, the Data Protection Authority has issued a reminder that even a step like taking mobile or cell phone numbers from employees could have data protection implications. And some regulators are talking about temporary measures. So you may, for example, uh, collect cell phone numbers to tell employees whether work locations are open or closed. But once they're closed, arguably at least, then you have to delete those personal cell phone numbers. Now, that might be extreme, and in many cases, I think um, there'll be a bit of uh, give and take. But again, to emphasize the point, data protection impact assessment is the answer to that. There has been an attempt to issue guidance at an EU level from the European Data Protection Board. Uh, there's also efforts to look at this on a global basis with uh, a uh, global privacy network that uh, used to be called GPEN, which is run out of the UK data protections office in, uh, 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 commissioner's office in Wilmslow. But my suspicion is these efforts will not be comprehensive because so many regulators, as I say, more than a dozen, have already issued their own guidance and there's quite some differences between uh, those, the, those various bits of guidance that are being issued. Jonathan, as someone named Tom, perhaps my favorite part of the <laughs> GDPR structure is appropriate technical and organizational measures, indeed Tom's. How do those relate yeah. to working yeah. from home? And how does an employer think through a, DP, a DPIA uh, as well for those who might be working from home. Yeah, as, as Mrs. Fox might say, you need to keep your Toms front and center. And for those working from home, of course, the employer doesn't get a free pass on security. It's the employer's job to make sure that personal data being handled in the home work environment is safe. So this will include having to, this will include training employees for the new normal. It'll include making sure that data's safe in the employee's home, so using things like VPNs. It'll mean making sure that data's safe in transit, so 
having appropriate protections on laptops. And by the way, BIOS encryption isn't enough. And things like padlocks on, um, on uh, briefcases to and from the office, uh, non-clear plastic folders for files, all of this stuff is important. Again, a DPIA can be very useful in uh, a, a, a way of assessing those security and data protection risks. And one of the other things that we find really useful is maybe a short film with guidance on working from home. Often help clients do, we call them 10 top tips sheets, which are just as they suggest, just we don't need formal, very wordy policies at this time. We need simple, clear guidance for people that you that they can print out and put next to their desk just to remind them to be super cautious when working from home. And then one last thing, I guess, is that we have to look at, at who's got access to what. And if we've got super users, so network administrators, et cetera, then we might need to put extra measures in place to secure their access to the system. Obviously, we need to guard against the um, against the determined hacker, but we also need to worry about all sorts of things like, for example, in my home, Tom, uh, if I leave the window open, next door's cat tries to sleep on my computer because it gets quite warm. So we need to guard against the hacking gangs, but we also need to guard against cats and kids using our equipment as well. So, Jonathan, one of the things regulators in the United States have been talking about, uh, consumer regulators and business regulators, is be vigilant. Mm. And uh, one of the things that we're beginning to see is scams around coronavirus. Uh, and I wanted to ask, does uh, a company need to be not only ever vigilant, but perhaps more vigilant for phishing attacks during this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Phishing attacks are on the rise. Uh, there's some COVID-19 specific uh, phishing attacks going around. Um, a lot of off-the-shelf phishing training is simply not for fit for purpose. You know, if you're still telling people to watch out for uh, uh, phishing attacks that are badly spelt from Africa, saying, may the good Lord go with you at the end, then you're telling your employees to look at, for the wrong things Uh Phishing attacks are much more sophisticated than that. And if you are using five-year-old examples for what phishing looks like, you are headed for disaster. So don't buy, uh, you know, bog-standard off-the-shelf phishing training that isn't fit for purpose. You need to make sure that it's targeted specifically at employees looking at the real risks, that they have regular reminders, Bear in mind the fact that for all sorts of reasons, I think Office 365 is especially vulnerable at this time. So look at your risk analysis. And additionally, we know, and this is uh, absolutely unforgivable, but we know that a lot of health sector organizations in particular are seeing a spike in ransomware attacks. And these uh, evil criminals think 
that because health organizations need access to data quickly and it's more consequential, that they are more likely to pay ransoms. So be extra vigilant for that. I know some um, uh, almost white hat vigilante hackers have threatened revenge on these gangs. So I think we are certainly headed for some cyber warfare between the good guys and the bad. Undoubtedly, however, there are going to be victims here. So be particularly alert to ransomware if you're uh, involved in healthcare. Jonathan, um, what do you suggest, or perhaps the better question might be, what is Cordery Compliance advising about communications with customers? I think it's got to be appropriate. I uh, tweeted some examples of law firm notices that, that we'd had over the last few days. I mean, we commonly buy in legal services on behalf of clients. So we're obviously on the client list of many law firms around the world. And I suppose the first thing I'd say is unless you've got something you know, particularly relevant to say, then then maybe don't say it. I've had an awful lot of emails with people saying um, we are getting our lawyers ready to work from home. Well, I'd expect that. Or almost tell customers if something unexpected is happening. Um, I, you know, reassurance is good, but uh, most of your customers, I think, will expect you to be working from home, working remotely, putting proper procedures in place, et cetera, et cetera. Be careful about emails that are uh, dressed up marketing messages. So um, we've had some recent litigation in the UK over um, people disguising marketing messages for another purpose. And the rules are pretty clear that if you include marketing in that email, it doesn't come within the essential services exceptions. So legislation in Europe that's similar to can spam applies, and you probably haven't got consent to send that message at this time. So be really, really careful. If you genuinely have to communicate with somebody about service alterations or whatever, make, make the email do that and nothing else. And as I say, we've had litigation, we've had regulatory statements, uh, Fly B and now Dead Airline, um, for example, was um, uh, was sanctioned for that previously by the UK regulator. And we think that there are complaints to DPAs already about this. And then I guess the last thing is if you need to get more details from a customer for some particular reason, for example, to process a cancellation or to refund the money at a conference, be careful what you ask for. You might decide that you actually don't need to know some stuff about them if all you're processing is a simple refund. So you might not need their date of birth, for example. So be careful what you ask for from people. And if you only need it for one purpose, then you've probably got to destroy it when that purpose is finished. So Jonathan, here, what I'd like to do is I want to take a five-second break so I know where to edit and then go through your seven points of how to minimize risk. Okie dokie. 
Okay, so uh, I'm going to start down and I'm going to take a five second silent count. Jonathan, what are some of the things that you and Cordery Compliance is advising clients on to minimize risk at this point? Well, in my mind, I've got a magnificent seven, Tom. So first one, the the bold yule brinner of compliance is do detailed due diligence on any possible provider. So many providers are coming out of the woodwork or out of the ether, work out who they are, where are they going to hold your data, are they prepared to enter into appropriate written agreements to help you meet your obligations. Two, minimize the sharing of data. Work out who health data needs to be shared with, the measures you're going to put in place to make that data confidential and secure. And bear in mind that recent cases, for example, the doorstep dispensary case in the UK, have told us that even healthcare professionals sometimes don't take as much care with data as they should. Three, only process the data you need. There's a data between, there's a distinction, I think, between data which is nice to have and data that you need to have. So make sure that you can justify all of the data you hold. Make sure that you follow what's called the accountability uh, um, principle under GDPR and that you register the reason for holding that. That's as simple, I think, as if you've got a spreadsheet. Column one says the field of data. Column two says why you need it. Um, there's going to be a particular problem with things like lo location-based data especially if you're collecting this without proper notice to employees. For example, if you're using their, uh, an app on their mobile or cell phone to locate. Four, do a data protection impact assessment. I know we often seem like we're on repeat mentioning DPIAs, but quite often they're the solution to difficult problems when you've got to have a proper structure and think things through. In most cases, I'd say 95% a DPIA will be mandatory. Even if it's not mandatory, it's usually a good idea. And obviously, we've talked about this before, Tom, but DPIAs are hot news in Europe because of the Irish Data Protection Authority's raid on Facebook. A lot of the data that you will be handling in this crisis will be more troublesome to employees than a dating app was uh, as proposed by Facebook. So it's clear that regulators will have an interest in this. And any responsible provider, if you're using a third-party vendor, will help you with a DPIA. Most of the good ones will have you know, DPIAs on the shelf just ready to send to you uh, to help you with your compliance. Fifthly, look at your transparency obligations. If you're collecting health data from employees, or visitors to your premises, or you're doing anything a bit out of the ordinary, you've got to tell them, and how are you going to tell them? And how long will you keep the data for? What are you going to tell them about your data handling going forward? Uh, sixth, keep up to date. Data protection authorities are changing their advice or clarifying it on an almost daily basis. Make sure you follow the latest guidance. And remember that under GDPR, a data protection officer must be provided with sufficient resources to fulfill their obligations. And DPOs are expected to have an expert knowledge of data protection law. These are tough times for a DPO. If you're a part-time DPO, you might need to reprioritize your work or speak to management about 
uh, allowing more time to focus on the complexities of this role. And lastly, consider your wider compliance obligations. Obviously, some countries like China, Austria, are passing specific laws which may place greater obligations on corporations. So make sure that you've got a process in place to monitor them, make sure you can fulfill your obligations, look at how you deal with requests from government for data. Some of these requests in themselves aren't lawful. So don't just assume because the request looks official that you have to comply with it. You need a process in place for working out which ones are real and which ones are mandatory and, and, and how to comply with those that you need to comply with. Jonathan, this has been a uh, very fascinating but also much needed exploration of what's required uh, under GDPR in this time of uh, massive worldwide health crisis. But more importantly, what can individuals and companies do to minimize the risk? I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing uh, discussion within the confines of quarterly compliance, even if it's a remote discussion and also with your clients. So I may ask you to come back and visit with us again as uh, we move into the uh, spring and into the early summer. So thank you very much. My pleasure, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert uh, that explores these topics in a little more depth in our show notes, so check that out. Also, uh, check out uh, the quarterly website for a great number of resources around GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. During this corona health crisis, please be safe, stay safe, and stay sanitary. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.